Amen. Thank you for singing. You may have a seat. And I invite you to open up a Bible, or if you have a smartphone, you can uh, pull up an app or Google it. And I invite you to turn with me to the book of James. The book of James. Such a helpful book, a practical book that we've been going through as a church family. Bit by bit, verse by verse, trying to let it sink into us and, and affect our lives and change us. And we know that in order to really have transformation, you got to be able to look in the mirror, right? When you wake up in the morning, uh, you want to go out without food in your teeth and your hair put together. And to at least look a little bit put together, you've got to look in the mirror. We're told that God's word is a mirror, it's a light, it's a lamp. And as we stare and we look at who Jesus is, that gives hope for change, real change, heart change. And so we're going to be looking at James uh, chapter 5, verses 7 through 12 this morning. Before we get to that text, let me ask you a question. If you found out that you were going to be visited by royalty today, or say uh, uh, a king was going to ride by in your neighborhood, you found out about this, would that change anything about your schedule or agenda for today? Like actual royalty, a king, a queen. Perhaps the president, okay, not exactly royalty in our, our democratic society, but still very, uh, very influential office. And we're thankful for our democratic processes that allow us to, uh, to elect our leaders. Well, I found out that the most expensive welcoming party and dinner in modern history was held back in 1971. And the king of Iran hosted this whole shindig. His primary guest of honor was the king of Ethiopia, Haile Selassie. Anyone, anyone heard of Haile Selassie? A couple, and not that many. It, it was a while back, but uh, apparently made quite a bang. There were nine kings in attendance, five queens, 16 presidents, two sultans. I think our vice president was there, not our, not our, uh, not our full president, but you know his representative, the vice president. But here, get this, they turned a desert into an, an oasis. This was about a decade of planning in advance. They had 600 people dining at that dinner. It's not just the royalty. It's their, it's their staff and, and it's other uh, dignitaries and, and people from the, the kingdom of Iran. They built an expansive network of tents to house these celebrity guests. And in order to do that, it took up 160 acres, about uh, 37 kilometers of silk, and it took them a year to build these special tents. Everything came in flown from France. They, I mean, all the foliage, <laughs> the trees, the designers, the food, the weights. I mean, they had this meal catered from, from France. You know, they brought in all the, the dining equipment and the wait staff and everything. They even flew in 50,000 songbirds from Europe for the ambiance. You know, you want to have some birds singing. It's not just boring desert. Well, they couldn't adapt to the the dry desert climate very well. So they, they all died pretty shortly a couple of days after they got there. So what a waste. And I feel bad for those birds. I mean, they had Mercedes Benz limos. They had the best restaurant in the world. They had $25,000 bottles of wine. About $516 million was the bill to host all that for dinner party in 1971, which back then it was 90 million, but for inflation today, it's 516 million. Incredible, right? Just to, just to put on a party for some dignitaries. But, but there was no Messiah king there. 
There was no ruler of the universe there. It was just a couple of people who in a couple of years, their own kingdoms would be deposed. The kingdom of Iran and the kingdom of Ethiopia didn't even exist 10 years later. So that's why this morning, when we look at some promises from Scripture about a coming king, this is something that really should rearrange our lives, rearrange our priorities, and give hope to the situation that we're in today. Because the king who is coming, who promised he is coming, is not coming from Ethiopia, Asia, or America, and he doesn't need to ride in a Mercedes-Benz. He comes through the clouds of heaven. His kingdom extends over all of the earth, and by his life, his death, his resurrection, and his reign from the throne of heaven, he's keeping his promises that he will string together a masterpiece working all of our brokenness and our sin and our despair and our tragedy together for good for those who love him and look for his coming. So let's read this passage this morning in light of the fact that Jesus said he's coming again. And I'll read it out loud for us. You can follow along. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. James says this, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So overall here, James is telling us, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, as he has established earlier in these chapters, someone who's been changed uh, and experienced a change in heart, a change in life, a change in your relationship to God, who's not just your creator, but is your savior and is your personal God, then we are called to live patiently in light of Jesus's return. Live patiently in light of Jesus's return. How is this possible? That's impossible. How can I be patient? First of all, the king is coming back. And we got to unpack what that means because this really is a game changer. This really does offer hope for our lives today. Look at verses 7 through 9. James doesn't lay out a big complex argument for, you know, can we know if Jesus is coming back or not? James assumes it. This is, this is, if you claim to be a Christian, one of the core doctrines of the faith is the second coming of Christ. He is coming back. Because he came once in the flesh, he died for our sins, he rose from the dead in the flesh, he ascended to heaven in the flesh, and he promised he's coming back in the flesh. The word that's used here for coming is parousias, or parousia. This is, this is a key word. You don't need to know Greek, okay? But you need to know that this word is pretty significant when we're talking about Christian beliefs talking about the physical coming of Jesus. And James says, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Like, it's definite. The coming. 
You should, you should know this. You should trust this. Trust the words of Jesus. It's a certainty. And his audience was well-versed in it. But in case some of us are a little less versed in, in what exactly does this all entail, I'll do a quick recap of what Jesus said. These are the words of Jesus, his promises. In John 14, 1 to 3, he told his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, and do all that work, I will come again. And I will take you to myself, that where I am, you will be also. Then in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 12, we're told what actually happened when he ascended up to heaven. In, in one minute, he's standing with his disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of God. And then he says, that's it. I'm going to the Father. I'm going to take the throne. And he ascends like he's in an elevator, but, but without an elevator, because he's the glorious risen son of God. And he transports up to heaven, and the disciples are just so amazed, like you and I would be. They're just staring at the sky, dumbfounded. I wonder how long they stood there for. I think an hour, probably. I, I certainly would. It's like, where'd you go, Jesus? And, and when are you coming back? Angels have to come stand beside them, Acts 1.11. And they said, why do you keep looking up into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you saw him go. He has the power to go up. He has the power to come back down. And when he comes, he will come in two parts. First, he comes to get his church. I think Pastor Dennis alluded to earlier. And we're told in 1 Thessalonians 4, this will happen with a shout from heaven, a cry of command. There'll be the voice of an archangel. There'll be the sound of the trumpet of God. Those who are dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Did you know, if you are in Christ, you will fly at some point. You know, there's that song, I'll fly away. Sounds kind of silly, right? And, and even as I say this, like, is this really true? Are we really going to be transported up to the clouds? Well, Jesus says, you're going to be where I am. So you're going to need a body like mine, a glorified body. That can transport. But the point here is not, oh, I'm going to be flying through the air. Everybody look at me. It's going to be on Jesus, the Lord. He's the one in control. He's the one descending. He will be here in person. This is the same Jesus who walked with the hurting, who talked to those who were rejected by society, loved them, shared the good news with them, changed their lives. It's the same Jesus who had compassion on the little girl, brought her from death to life. Same Jesus who had compassion on the, the young man who was on his, his, like his coffin basically being carried to the grave. He stopped the procession, brought that man back to life. It's the same Jesus who cried over the death of his friend Lazarus and then rose him back. Same Jesus, same caring person. What would it be like to spend a day with Jesus? What would it be like to spend forever with Jesus? I don't, I, I know some of us are going through some things right now. There's distance, there is gaps, there is loss, there, there can be a hole. You feel that. I want you to know that Jesus, as the cosmic ruler of all, and the maker of you, and the lover of your heart, he is the one who wants you to be close to him forever. I know you're hurting. I know what you're going through. I, I bled out on the cross for you. I was killed even though I was innocent, and I did that willingly so that we would be together. 
it's not a hope or it's a false hope if we just say Jesus is only ever in the sky, there's only ever a spiritual thing going on, but there's never actually any physical or personal connection with Jesus ever again. The good news is that we will be together for those who are in Christ. We're told to be ready. Be ready for his coming. He could come at any moment. We're told 50 times in the New Testament. Be ready. Be ready. He's coming. Be ready. This is what we call the doctrine of imminency. At any moment. And, and James highlights that. He says the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's right nearby. The judge is standing at the door. So as you, as you read that or think that, I mean, you should almost look over your shoulder. Is he there? That's the kind of mentality we're supposed to have because at any moment he will be standing at the door and calling his beloved to the skies with him. And after seven years of tribulation, he will return with all of his saints, not just in the clouds, but all the way through the atmosphere to the earth. And he brings his church with him and he makes all things right. Because he's not coming as a humble servant anymore who's going to follow along with the Roman system and the Roman system of government. And, and he's just going to he's going to suffer humbly because he's got to atone for sins. That's all done with. When he comes back, he comes as the righteous judge. Listen to this. Revelation 19, 11 through 14. Then I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems or crowns. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. That's the, that's the church. Those are the saints. We ride with our king. I don't know if you're a Lord of the Rings fan or you watched Return of the King, that the majestic end scene where the armies come rushing down together and the sun peeks up over the horizon. That's what it will be like. But from heaven to earth, I cannot wait to see some of you riding a horse from heaven to earth. Like this is this is mind blowing. Certainly wilder than any roller coaster you'll find at Bush Gardens, right? But those who ride with him are those who have been washed by his blood. Those who have personally known him and accepted him as their savior and king. Because we have all rebelled against the king. So you can't be on the winning side until you bow the knee and say, Jesus, I need you. I'm, I'm on the losing side here. I've rebelled against you and I desperately need you. So for those who are more concerned about the sins of others than themselves, for those who are more concerned about what they're going to do with their life and their income and, and the plans that they have more than what God has planned and what he says we need to do with our life, Jesus' second coming is not going to be a comfort. It's going to be a terror because he is the righteous judge. He's standing at the door. No one escapes the reach of his justice. Our justice system works in our country. Right. Other countries have their justice systems, whether they work or not. You know, there's even gaps in our own justice system. What about the king of the universe who sees everything, who hears everything, who knows even the thoughts going on in your mind and your heart at every moment? You can't hide anything from him. And he comes back 
and you stand before him, there's no more hiding. There's no more telling, telling people, I'm a good person. I really am. Jesus knows the truth. And the Bible tells us, Romans chapter 3, verse 10, no one is righteous apart from Jesus. If he's the righteous judge, I'm not. There's no one righteous. And the wages of sin is death. And that will be exposed on the final day, and there will be a final judgment for those who reject Christ. But James reminds us of these events not to terrify us, but to cause us to consider, do I really know Jesus as my Lord and Savior? Is the God of heaven my God? Do I know the Father because I know and I've received the Son? And if so, we have joy when Jesus comes back. He promises us he's going to wipe away every tear. He's going to mend every broken heart. No more grief, no more pain, no more brokenness. There will be hope in the flesh because hope will come in the flesh. And he will remake all flesh. And he will remake this earth. The Bible tells us that even the lion and the lamb can lay down together with no threat at all. So where do you stand? before the righteous king and judge today. He knows you. Do you know him? Have you reached out to the rescue that he has offered by his blood on the cross? It's as simple as admitting you're a sinner and needing him, believing that he is the one and only way to have a relationship with God and confessing your sins to him. Say, God, I'm a, I'm a selfish, guilty sinner. I deserve judgment, but you offer mercy. Would you please offer mercy to me? Would you save me? Here today, your life can have confidence and hope in Jesus Christ. We're here at Living Hope Church to fully devote ourselves to Jesus Christ, to devote ourselves to that message that is our only hope and it's our certainty for today and the future. But folks, there's an urgency to this. If Jesus really is coming back and he can come back at any moment, doesn't that add some urgency to 2024? This isn't just another year to add to the timeline. What if this is the year? What are we going to do with it? Maybe it's not started out at all how you would want. But could this be the year where you come to know Jesus in the deepest, most fulfilling way possible? Could God turn this for good? And church, those who claim to know Christ, Hebrews 10.25 tells us, don't neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another. And encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Every time we gather together, it's a louder celebration. It's a louder celebration. We're one day closer, and Jesus has held on to us still. But then that also means the people around us are a priority. Because there's not going to be a do-over to life. We get one shot at this. What are we going to do with the message that we have that can literally change people's lives and turn death into joy and dancing? But we got to open our mouths and we got to share it. We got to be people of the word inside and out because the king is coming. So, because the king is coming, we also need to be patient for his return. That's the second point John makes. And this is, or James makes, excuse me. And this is the meat of the passage. This is be patient. Be patient. Be patient. How many times does he have to say it? Four, five, six? Uh, he uses the word for patient four times, and then he uses other words that are like synonyms, you know, suffering and, and endurance. And 
and uh, you know, uh, uh, what is it? Um, yeah, steadfast and what is it about um, your hearts? Your hearts encourage your hearts with this. So that word patient means having a long fuse, and some of us need a longer fuse, myself included. Because once you believe it, as I was working on this message on patience this past week, my patience got tested a whole lot. I think I'm a really impatient person. I think I need to hear this. That's why he says it over and over. Be patient, be patient, be patient. And especially in this context, if you were here last week, the previous verses told us that there were some people who are Christians that are being cheated out of their wages by the people that they're working for. They're being cheated. They're being taken advantage of. And they're like, what is up with this? How long, Jesus? How long are you going to put up with this and put up with this injustice? And it's hard to answer that from our human perspective. Because I want to say there is no purpose to getting cheated out of your wages. There's no purpose to suffering. There's no purpose to, to that hardship that you're going through. In my mind, as a human, I can't understand that. So James gives us three ways that we can better wrap our minds around why we can truly be patient and trust in the Lord as we wait for his coming. The first is we're called to look at the farmer. You guys know the farmers? Verses 7 through 8, he uses the illustration of a farmer because a farmer has to do a lot of waiting, don't they? A farmer doesn't just make the crop. The crop grows and the farmer patiently works and waits and expects to see the results at the time of harvest. He's not going to see the results up front. In fact, a lot, of, a lot of farming families that I knew back in the Midwest, it was really hard for them because they have to put a lot out at the beginning of the year. They have to put a lot into the, to the seed, into the equipment, and they're not going to get that money back until you get to harvest time. It's a big waiting and trusting game to be a farmer. That's why they're hard to find these days. Farmers are some of the hardest working people you'll ever meet. And they do it all in faith that the harvest will come. He uses the term here, early and latter rains. If you're not familiar with the land of Israel, I'll just clue you into why he's saying that. Because the land of Israel, it is that, that, that soil is uh, perhaps even less uh, absorbent than our sandy soil here. You need the rain in order for things to move along there. In fact, you need the early rain because after a, a hot summer, the ground is baked hard. I mean, it's solid. You're not breaking that ground up. So you need the early rain to soften the ground up, and then the farmer can cultivate and plow and, and sow the seed. And then you need the latter rain towards the end of the, the growing season because that's what gives that final shoot and maturity to the crops. So it's not like the farmer is just sitting back. Oh, yes, still wait. Don't wait for the crops. He's actually working his tail off, or she is working her tail off. But here's the deal. A farmer is patient because he knows what is in his control. A farmer is patient because he knows what's in his control. A farmer can't control the growth of that crop. So, honestly, it's a relief off of his shoulders. I'm not responsible to just stand here and watch. <laughs> I got to watch until that thing pops. And then I got to watch over here until... God controls that. You know what I can do? I can cultivate. I, I can fertilize. I can sow the seed, and I'm going to trust God and his timing to do the rest of the work. Isn't that so fitting for the life of a believer? How many areas in your life 
you are not seeing fruit. You're not seeing progress. Can I encourage you, bring the word of God to bear on that situation. What does the word of God say? Because that is the seed that brings life. And just like the farmer, it's, it's a walk of faith. You're not going to see the fruit. It's not going to just pop out of the ground. But as we sow, and as we pray, and as we wait, and as we trust, and as we work, and we show patience, in due time, you will see the fruit of that. One reason we really struggle with stress and anxiety and over-the-top worry I'm not going to say this is the only reason. There are some psychological factors. There are some medical factors. There are other things to take into consideration. But one of the reasons I know I struggle with stress and anxiety is because I'm worrying about things that are completely outside of my control. I could stay up all night worrying about it and it doesn't change a thing. <laughs> I don't have control about it, although Lacey's smiling because I... I sleep pretty well at night usually. Uh, that's, uh, it, you know, I don't know if it's a, a guy thing. Or I hit the pillow and usually I'm, I'm out. But during the day, I can be a worried wart. Doesn't change a thing though. The farmer knows, okay, I give to God the things that are God and I do the things that he calls me to do. And parents, that should be a big relief to us as well. Knowing I can do nothing to change the heart of my kid and make him turn out right and, and be, a, be a help to society and to be one that devotes their lives to God. But I can encourage my heart knowing that God's promises are true. They're true for this generation, just like they were 2,000 years ago. So friends, don't give up. Don't grow weary of doing good, as Galatians 6, 9 says. In due season, we will reap. We will bring in the harvest. God's will will be done if we do not quit. Be patient. Share the gospel. Keep sowing. Keep worshiping. Keep reading the Bible and listening to the voice of God. You know, I've discovered that church planting and life are very similar. You sow seeds into a lot of people and you have no idea what's going to happen in the weeks to come. It's, it's, it's a walk of faith. But here's one thing that I think it was another church planter told me along the way. He said, don't overestimate what you can accomplish in a year, okay? Let's just reality check. Don't overestimate what you can accomplish in a year, but don't underestimate what God can do in five years or three years. See, sowing will always bear fruit. God's word will always bear fruit. And if the farmer wasn't a, a good enough example just right there, look also to the prophets. He tells in verses 9 through 11, don't grumble against each other. Don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you will not also be judged. Now, I know I need to explain this because no one in here struggles with grumbling. You are all such kind and patient and amazing people. You would never grumble. I do. So that's why I take it from a grumbler uh, to explain it to you what exactly that is. It's when you go to the restaurant and your food doesn't come out when you think it should come out. Where's my food? Why are they not here yet? Come on, this is your one job. This is your one job. You can't just make my meal. I mean, there's not even that many people around here. We've all been there, right? The grumbling starts. Or someone treats you a way that you don't think you deserve. How could they treat me that way? They know what, what a good, kind person. After all I've done for them, good night. 
I was so humbled recently by by the example of my parents, Dennis and Chris, because they were actually in a car accident. And I, I, I got to tell you, that, that was a really, you know, could have been a really, really big trial. And they took it in stride with humility. They had a proper perspective on life. And I didn't hear them grumble or complain one time after all they went through. And I just, I praise God for that because God is at work in my parents. And if you know my parents, they're a great example for someone who's trusting God and enduring with patience. Meanwhile, out in our community, you drive down the road and you get smacked in the face with 20 of those law office banners, right? Hey, class action settlement, or did they give you some bad medication? Call this number. Did you get an accident? They'll call you if you get in an accident, right, Dad? And they will just hound you. Don't you want to sue somebody? Don't you just want to get even? Don't you want to get your day in court? And when people mistreat us, we certainly feel like we have a right to grumble. But here's the thing. We don't need to get even or to go around and tell everyone else what that person did to hurt us. You know why? Because the judge is standing at the door. He saw it. He knows about it. He knows what they were going to do to you. And my comfort is in the fact that if it still happened, that means he is working through those circumstances to show you his grace and his mercy. He doesn't just leave us. He didn't just create us, wind us up like a clock and say, have at it, kids, tear each other apart. He has a plan. And if I'm in Christ, I have his spirit within me. I have all that I need because he is with me in spirit and I have his word to guide me. So I don't need to get even and I don't need to badmouth others because I trust he is in control. I don't want to try to take Jesus's judgment seat. And it's human of me to think, it's sinful of me to think that two wrongs could make a right. Well, you hurt me in this way. Now I get to hurt you back. What, is, what does that accomplish? Jesus is the one who makes things right. He is the one who gives grace and healing. They took money from you. They took something from you. He will give it back. He is good for it. Jesus doesn't want us to grumble. He wants us to trust them. And those, those prophets in the Old Testament, by the way, they were rejected by their people. They were ignored every time they gave a message from the Lord. Here's what the Lord says. People like, ah, don't listen to them. They're crazy. They're crazy. Ignore them. Or they were killed. And yet none of those prophets took on the role of a judge or a king. They knew their place. There is one king. There is one judge. And if I don't get justice right now in this life, I certainly will in the one to come. And they completely entrusted their lives to, that, to him, and God blessed them for it. I believe that James was referring to the Sermon on the Mount here. In Matthew 5, Jesus tells us, Blessed are you when others revile you, they push you away, when they persecute you, when they utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, be glad, because your reward is great in heaven. Because they persecuted my prophets the same way. And I bless them. God is faithful. He rewards. Don't think that because you're suffering, you cannot also experience God's blessing. It won't feel like it. But that's why we go to the word. 
And we sang that song just a moment ago, right? I won't, I won't trust my feelings. My feelings can be a liar. I don't see the whole picture like Jesus does. But I do know on the last day, he will come and he will make all things right. Dad and I were talking to the missionary we've been praying for, Nick. We, we got to have a video call with him this past week. And, and he says, thank you so much for your prayers. Thank you so much for your support. He appreciates the love that our church is showing from afar. And he's in uh, uh, Romania, for those, for those of you that are not sure. But he was originally supposed to be in the Ukraine. He trained to be a missionary. He got sent overseas, and he was in Ukraine for about four months. And then the war forced a bunch of people to flee because he was, like, right right on the border near Russia. So there's no, there's no, should we stay, should we go? You need to go. So he's in Romania now. And it's incredible because he's talking to believers there, and they said, you know what? When we saw the church most passionate about Jesus Christ and in love with him and living out his teachings and reaching their neighbors, that was actually during the time of persecution during the Soviet Union era. It was the suffering that brought out the greatest work of God because who else are they going to depend on? You can't go to the government and complain. Your attorney is not going to defend you. He's going to turn against you. We have nothing but Jesus, and that is when they saw the church move and the gospel go forward. Christian, I'm not telling you I'm happy at the things that you're going through today. Friend, I'm not, I'm not happy at the stuff that you're going through. I know it's, it's a weight, a weight that threatens to drag you down. But can I encourage you that if Jesus gave up his life on the cross, if God can turn that, for the good of all of his people, for all of eternity, then this momentary suffering will pass. There is light beyond the darkness of this tunnel if we are patient and we trust in Christ. And here's our final example. Look at Job. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. You've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. If you don't know Job, it's a whole book in the Bible, really long book actually and basically the whole point of job is why did the just people suffer why do bad things happen to good people it's a question we ask all the time it's one of the like number one question i get asked by people in our community if god's so good why do terrible things happen and job certainly didn't do anything to tick god off and yet he lost his kids he lost his wealth his servants even his health he was, he was battered and broken. He had nothing. And yet he told his friends who were beating up on him and, and mocking him, basically saying, you, you wicked person, you must have done something to take God off. He says, I'm going to trust God. I know that my Redeemer lives and that he is able to see me through. And what did God do for Job? He had mercy and compassion on him. He actually doubled what Job had lost. God doubled it back. Now, I'm not saying that he's going to do that for every single one of us. <laughs> you lost your car, God's going to give you two cars. No, okay, that's not, that's not the exact promise here. The promise is, if we are trusting in the Lord, you will see his mercy. You will see his provision. Or you can keep walking that path trying to do it yourself and figure it out yourself. There's no mercy there. Because you're trying to find mercy in the same things or people who took it away from you. 
People will not show you mercy. Life will not be fair. You will lose things. There will be times where no one cares about you. But in that moment, you can know and remember there is a God in heaven who does. And he always will. And the cross is our hope for all of eternity. And if you're here this morning and you're struggling and you have doubts, you're like, I, I literally have no idea where this roller coaster of my life is going. I just need some help. I need some prayer. I want to let you know this is why our church is here. We're not here to just do churchy things and, and feel better about ourselves. We are here because Jesus has shown us a great mercy and love. And we are called to be a light to this community for such a time as this. For whatever you're going through, this is a time we want to help. We want to serve. And we're not going to do what some of the religious leaders were doing back in this day. Verse 12, apparently some of the Pharisees were really big into swearing or keep, you know, making oaths. Like, hey, you know, I, I, I really promise that I'm good for this. I, you know, you can trust me. So they would swear by the temple or they would swear by the gold of the temple to try to show people just how serious they were about keeping their word. Jesus says, that's, that's, that's nonsense. Stop swearing. Stop making oaths. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Let's keep it simple, right? Say, say what you mean and mean what you say. Be transparent. Christian, are you known for being a reliable source of comfort to others? Just, I'm here for you. I want to show God's love to you. I'm not, I'm not going to make promises I can't keep and I can't do everything for you, but I'm here for you. We are ambassadors for Christ. We can love. We can show mercy. We don't need to keep running our mouths and try to get people to think that we're better than we are. It's not about me. And any good that I do, it's not because of me. It's because of Christ at work in me, because my Redeemer lives. So as we conclude, James reminds us this morning, Jesus is coming. He is. And we will all stand before him. And he will be bearing the sword, and he doesn't bear it in vain. So my question for you is, are you ready for the fiery eyes of the Lord of heaven to look at you face to face? Does he know you because you have invited him into your life and you've surrendered the lordship of your life to him? Has that exchange happened? We're all sinners, but at some point you've got to receive the Savior or else you're on the losing side. This can be the day of salvation for you. This can be the day that your life changes. That doesn't mean all the anxieties flee from you and all the cares of life disappear, but it means that you have an in with the one who's in control over everything. And he can even bring peace to your troubled heart as you go through it, and he will guide you through it. Church, this is a big year for us. We're here for such a time as this. We, we, we don't have time to waste. If you say, hey, I'll wait two or three years and I'll, and I'll start seriously following Jesus and I'll start obeying the word and I'll start serving in the church, but you know that's going to take time. That's called wasted time. The time is now to step up and serve. The time is now to help your hurting neighbors. The time is now to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. And one way that we're doing that is on January 28th, we are going to covenant together as a church. We're, we're going to say, I identify with Living Hope Church because what Christ has done in me and because I love these people and because we're here for such a time as this, 
We're going to make that willing partnership. We're going to set down roots. And it's not about us. It's about the next generation. It's about these kids. It's about the neighbors we haven't reached yet. It's about the people who are going to live 50 years from now that you'll never meet. But they need to find a church that's going to tell them the truth and let them know that Jesus is coming. If we're all still around then, 50 years from now. Because if we are, people are going to need more hope than ever. Who's going to share it with them? I'm going to covenant and commit together, and our family is going to covenant and commit together to say, we're here. We're all in for such a time as this. And we want to invite you all to consider taking that step with us, using your gifts and abilities to serve. Because if you're hearing my voice right now, this message is for you. Would you serve? Would you serve the young ones in children's ministry and allow us to open up an older kids class? Would you serve as a greeter, knowing that anyone who comes in that door might have a burden and you can, with your smiling face, give them some encouragement? Would you be willing to help with music? Because music stirs our hearts towards heaven. How would God lead you to commit to his mission? Whatever that role is, let's be sure to live our lives in light of Christ's return.